You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Oh, how was golf, by the way, Freach? It was good. It was nice today. I did get my first par of the year. I was very happy. I just have to know. I just have to understand where this team is going. I'm in the prime of my career. I still have so much to improve on too. And I like where my game is at. I like the physical nature that my body is at. I'm only improving. I'm only getting better. And I'm only going to be a better player next year than I was this year. I just have to know where this team is going and what the direction is and what the changes are going to be, if any. I have to think about my career and what's going to be best for me. Those are going to be talks with my agents and everyone in my family and stuff like that and figure out what I really want so it'll be a tough talk tomorrow. Mark Shifley starts off 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all-new GMC AT4 lineup. Uh, the Winnipeg Jets finishing off the NHL schedule, Elliot beating the Seattle Kraken, and those were the comments by one number 55, double nickels, Mark Shifley. Your thoughts? My first thought was, there's a game today? I completely <laughs> forgot Winnipeg and Seattle were playing against each other. Yeah. All of a sudden, I looked and I was getting updates and... I, I was doing Lego with my son, and I was getting updates. It's like, oh, my God, I, I totally forgot there was a game. What I think is, Jeff, is that something that we have wondered is now out in the open. And we've all expected it, and we all thought about it. And now we all know it's out there, and we'll see where it goes. And that is who feels what about Winnipeg right now. And Mark Shifley is the first person to go public with his thoughts, but he won't be the last one. You know, Mark Chipman said on the weekend interview with Sarah Orleski that Kevin Sheveldayoff was going to remain the general manager. And uh, we should credit Ken Weeb, our teammate at Sportsnet, for reporting that Sheveldayoff has a three-year contract extension that is yet to be announced. At some point in time, he'll have a media conference too. There'll be other players as well. And I think we're going to find out where it all stands. I don't think that Mark Shifley is the only player in that room thinking about a change of scenery. And equally as important, I don't think the organization is separate from the players in thinking that there are some of those individuals who need a change of scenery and the franchise needs a change in direction. So I don't think this comes as a big surprise internally. I don't even think it comes as a big surprise to the fans and media, but there's something different about it being put out there by one of the principals. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all wondering how far does this go? 
and how many people are we talking about? You know, this comes on the heels of, you know, last week where Neil Pionk talked about, you know, feeling embarrassed about the season, feeling, uh, you know, embarrassed when he looks in the mirror, bad season for him, etc. And to your point, not the only player on that team, I'm sure, that felt this way, but now players are starting to go public about it. You know, we have all wondered about Mark Shifley. I think that's safe to say. I think a lot of us have wondered about the future of Connor Hellebuck uh, as well. Maybe people have wondered about the future for someone like Nate Schmidt, maybe some of the younger players. How deep do these cuts go? You know, which players are they going to say we're going to continue to build around these guys and which ones will be not wanted on the voyage? I'm very much of the belief that these are going to be deep cuts in Winnipeg. I think this is going to be more than just putting on a, a top hat and a bow tie here. I think there's going to be a, a little bit more than just a, a thinly veiled makeover of this team. I can see some big moves being made here. I, it just feels, Elliot, like the Winnipeg Jets have gone as far as they can with this group. And I think management knows it. And you're starting to get the sense now that the players know it as well. Yes, Jeff, I agree with that. And like I said, I think it was well-known privately, and now it's going to be known publicly. And I think the question is going to be, how far and wide does this go? And the other thing I think is important to mention here is that I sometimes you get trade requests and the team is like, no, or we don't support this. I think in some, not all of these cases, I believe the team is going to be willing to accommodate. Now, I'm sure there's a part of the Jets won't want this so public. The Jets really like to keep their business private. Mm -hmm. And also there are teams who feel that this always hurts your leverage, but that doesn't necessarily mean the Jets are going to be unwilling to accommodate it. And so I'm just wondering how deep it goes. Around the trade deadline this year, I was chasing reports that there were several Jets players not reports, but rumors that several Jets players were looking to be traded. And the reaction I got was, let's see where we are at the end of the season. So now we're at the end of the season and we're possibly at one. So I think we're going to see where else this goes. Okay, so we'll stay tuned on that one. Um, meanwhile, Sunday, the uh, Ottawa Senators general manager, Pierre Dorian, uh, addressing the media. A lot of what Dorian talked about revolved around injuries, whether it was uh, Matt Murray battling concussion, whether it was Jake Sanderson's hand, whether it was a discussion about Shane Pinto's shoulder and Connor Brown's wrist and Matthew Joseph's rib and shoulder as well and Colin White's horrible uh, experience with covid what did you make of the Ottawa Senators' Sunday presser? Well, I, I thought it was a lot of what I expected it to be, a, a lot of you know positivity about some of the way that players ended the season. A lot of their players took some growth. They really believe in their young core. I thought it was interesting that he gave some clarity. Uh, you know, Victor Mete won't be qualified. Some other players won't be coming back. His journey. Pierre Dorian's quote, are we going to be a team that spends $81.5 million next year? No. I think unless you can guarantee me that we'll sell out the 41 games, I think I can push that through to spend 81 and a half million. But if we're not <laughs> going to sell out the 41 home games, I think we're still going to be a team. I think that quote did get kind of misrepresented a little bit. Mm -hmm. What a shocker. Context got vacuumed and all of a sudden you're left with <laughs> a raw comment. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Twitter at all, Elliot. 
When I first read it on Twitter, it's, I mean, I was like, that sounded really harsh. As a matter of fact, I was thinking that's not even a message that a general manager should give. That's probably more of a message of a, a president or owner or yeah. whoever the number one person in your business operations is. That's a message they should be delivering, not your general manager. So I thought it was a little more harmless than it was made out to be, but probably an accurate picture of what the senators are thinking. We've talked about Ottawa's offseason. There's a lot of balls in the air. I don't think we really know now where this is going to go and and what this is going to mean. But it's this kind of the same thing that Ottawa's had the past couple of years. I think they do a great job of drafting and identifying amateur talent. What they have to do is find the professional talent at good value, the more veteran talent, I guess, at good value, to supplement that. That's what they seem to have a problem with. Although they hit it out of the park with Forsberg, who's been very good for them. Well, and that was an interesting part of it as well, because, you know, there was a conversation about, you know, Matt Murray um, coming back and you mentioned Anton Forsberg and Philip Gustafson um, and Pierre Dorian said, you know, he wouldn't be surprised, I'm paraphrasing here, but wouldn't be surprised that there were three goaltenders. But there, there is a chance that we have three goalies next year. And all three guys know the exit interview with with Philip was very short and to the point. In the year 2021, you probably were the best goalie that played for the Ottawa Centers. This year, out of three, you're probably the worst. Find a way to get back to being the best. He said, "Okay." Which, as we know, always works out swimmingly for everybody involved. The team's happy, and all the goalies are always happy in that situation. That's a really bad idea. I always love it's one of my one of my my pet delights is always watching managers twist themselves into logical pretzels trying to justify to themselves and any assembled media why it's going to be okay this time that there's three goalies <laughs> on the team which you know as you point out never works and is never uh, a good idea. But Pierre Dorian did say that they were prepared to spend more. That there there is going to be a bump in payroll next year, and of course everybody's ears perked up and said, "Okay, well that means Claude Giroux." Just bluntly, Elliot, does that mean Claude Giroux? Number one thing everybody's wondering is, does he stay in Florida? But if he gets to free agency, then I think they've got a shot. I do, but we'll see. There's time between now and then. We've talked a lot about triage for a lot of these teams. First order of business here must be a deal with Josh Norris. I am assuming, and, and they kind of said that that's one thing they'll work on quick. I wonder if they say to him, look, we're doing what we did with Kachuk. We're doing term. Mm-hmm. Same agency. Norris did say he's going to be leaning on on Brady Kachuk here through this negotiation. They're both Newport guys. So we'll see there. And listen, things ended on uh, a positive note with players like Tim Stutzla, certainly, who's looking right now. And I don't know at what point it's fair to do a redraft of a draft. And it's probably too soon to do the redraft of 2020. But that third overall pick looks really good. Looks really good for the Ottawa Senators, Elliot. And we'll see what happens with Jake Sanderson, uh, who they took at five, uh, who comes in next season. Joel Quenville uh, made headlines over the weekend with a tweet by Andy Strickland. What's the latest? What do you hear? What do you know? Well, I've been working on this for a little bit of time just to kind of find out because I, I do think that there are teams that want to know what his status is and whether or not they can talk to him for open coaching positions or positions that could be open. Number one, he has not been reinstated by the NHL at this point in time. 
so he would have to meet with the league to be reinstated. That has not happened yet. And I think one thing that has kind of been happening is teams have been asking, you know, what does that mean? Are we allowed to even interview him? I know teams have asked. They're also, you know, goofily secretive about their hiring process. Mm -hmm. So nobody will confirm it, but teams have asked. So he's not reinstated yet. That's number one is that technically, even if you wanted to hire him right now, you can't pending an NHL ruling that he's free to be hired. Okay, pause on that for yeah. one, one second. I, I am curious, and we'll just use Detroit as an example because they have an open vacancy behind the bench. If Steve Eiserman wanted to hire Joel Quenville at this point, mm-hmm. um, to your point, they would have to seek reinstatement or Quenville would have to seek reinstatement by the National Hockey League. And then two, mm-hmm. is he free and clear or would Detroit need to do something with Florida here? Or is he just his own I don't know the answer to that right now. Okay. I, I don't know the answer to that. And to be honest, one of the things that people have said to me is kind of like one step at a time. There's a couple of things about this. Number one, I'm sure that if Quenville wants to come back, he's been taking, I don't even know if courses is the right word, or at least educating himself. Some type of training. On, you know, to learn the lessons that need to be learned coming out of uh, what happened in Chicago, reporting guidelines, et cetera. Like, first of all, God forbid we ever see anything like this again, but how you are supposed to handle these kinds of situations. I have no doubt that if he wants to come back, he would at least realize that you have to do all of that first. And that kind of training needs to be done and has to be done. You know, the other thing here that somebody said to me was, if you take a look at the NHLPA's report into its handling of Kyle Beach, in my feelings on it are public, you can go find them. There was a very large window into individual testimony there. Mm-hmm. Like all the witnesses who were interviewed, especially the key ones, we have a very good idea of what they said. Like their individual testimony in many of the important moments was included directly in the report. That wasn't the case in the report from the Blackhawks. We do not have a very clear picture of their independent testimony. You know, someone was saying to me, there are some points in there that kind of indicate or give you an impression of what Quenville said or testified, but they're very small. And there isn't an overall big picture there of what Quenville said. You know, what this individual said to me, and he's a lawyer, is that when you read the two reports, you get a very different picture of what individual people testified. And so one of the things he kind of looks at is says he would like to know, aside from the small snippets in the Jenner and Block report, he would like to know before he would vote on whether or not Quenville could coach is he would like to see Quenville's individual testimony because that way he said, that's the only true way I can judge what Quenville did or did not do here. In these kinds of situations, I always ask a couple of people I know who have some legal training in this, mm-hmm. you know, what would you say and how would you judge it? And, and what do you think the process will be here? And, you know, the, what he said to me was these two things. Number one, 
Has he educated himself? And number two, you know, what does his testimony say? We don't really have a very clear picture of what Quenville said to the investigators. And in the Players Association report, we have a very clear picture of what the individual said to the investigators. So that, that's what his response was to me. He said that he would say, has he educated himself? And he would like to know specifically what Quenville told. He would want to read Quenville's full testimony to the investigators. Okay, we're going to get into playoff previews here in a couple of moments, but a couple of words first about the Detroit Red Wings and their coaching situation and the team parting ways with Jeff Blaschel. Um, we had talked about or speculated on the future behind the bench of the Detroit Red Wings uh, going back a few weeks, and today it was announced there will be no Jeff Blaschel next season for the Red Wings, to which Elliot Friedman says what? First of all, he had a good run, second longest tenured coach in the National Hockey League uh, behind only John Cooper. And, you know, the Red Wings definitely showed a lot of patience throughout the years, I think Steve Eiserman and before that, Ken Holland, I thought they were really loyal to Blashill in the sense that they said that everything that was going on there wasn't all his fault. And some of the things that happened were out of his control and kind of occurred before he got there. And I don't always think that sports are fair. And that's just the way life, as we all tell our kids as parents, life's not fair. But I thought the Red Wings were very fair to Blashill. And I'm going to be interested to see what he decides to do next, what his next route is, because I think a lot of coaches are better the second time around than the first. And I would be very curious to see how Blashill could do with a team that was moving up as opposed to going down or sideways Mm. as the Red Wings were in his tenure. Like there was really no point in his tenure, Jeff, unless you think I'm wrong, where the Red Wings were trending upwards. No, 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 no. This was a team that was transitioning from that team that had the 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 marathon uh, stretch where, you know, every year it was, you know, trade all futures to make the playoffs into a we're rebuilding this thing under Steve Eiserman phase. Like at no point did he enjoy the the fruits of any labor. He just did all the heavy lifting. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately for Jeff Blaschel, he's not going to be there on the podium uh, when they reach, you know, some heights that we think that a Tret Red Wings could reach again. I don't know when that's going to be, but at least we can see the building blocks in place. He just won't be there when that actualizes. Like we've talked about this before. You you look at teams in two different states, potentiality and actuality. He's always had a team that's existed in potentiality, never actuality. I'm really curious to see where Iserman goes here. I'll tell you this. I called someone today and he actually said to me, I don't even want to talk to you because if Iserman has an idea that I've talked to you, I probably (laughs) won't get this job. Was that person Lane Lambert? Was that person uh, Paul Maurice? Was that person Ricard Gromberg? Was that (laughs) person? Well, I think the interesting thing about it was not any of those people, first of all. Okay. But I'm interested in the fact that the first name you mentioned was Lane Lambert, because I do think that's going to be a name that's going to be all over this job. So someone texted me that, like about, honestly, Elliot, about two minutes after the news was announced. (laughs) And like right away was just like two words, just text Lane Lambert. 
even before I, I, I found out about the Detroit announcement, I'm thinking to myself, what is this person going on about? And then it popped up on my phone and I'm like, ah, okay. But it feels very much like that's the name that's set a lot on a, on a lot of people's minds right now around Detroit. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously they have a history together. They played yes. together and I believe they were roommates at one time. And the other thing too, is that Lambert's ready. I don't know how much more prepared you could be as an assistant coach in the NHL without having a head coaching job than he is. And he was one of those people who was up with uh, Jared Bednar when Bednar got the Colorado job. He's interviewed a lot. Was he up for Anaheim? Was he close with Anaheim? Yeah, he was in that mix too. He was absolutely in that mix too. But I do think you're going to see people be very careful about talking here because they know how Lamorello light Iserman is. I don't know that it's light, <laughs> to be honest. Well, with nobody's you. like Lamorello, so it's out of respect for him. So from now on, Iserman right. is Lamorello light, and Verbeek is Iserman light. That's how okay. we go. We're seeing how this works here. Um, yeah. Elsewhere around the NHL, Montreal Canadiens. Let's. Uh, I want to get to Martin Saint Louis, but I want to start by talking about Carey Price. Mm-hmm. I'm really uncomfortable talking about or speculating on a player wrapping up his career. Mm-hmm. But I remember Kelly Rudy saying to me once, the minute you think about retirement, part of you retires. You know who also was that? Mm. And I remember in his autobiography, Marv Levy. Oh, really, eh? The football coach, yes. He said that if you set a date for retirement, you've already retired. Yeah. I read his book, and that is the line that stood out for me the most. Hmm. So I, I completely understand where you're coming from here. And look, the fact that he kind of said that and he talked about how Friday was an A-plus day. and Can you go back to yesterday, you know, morning skate, going back home, seeing your family, playing that game, seeing your family? And what was your, in what frame of mind were you? Were you saying to yourself, this is maybe it? Did you prepare that way? Yeah. Um, you know, the whole day was... Uh, it was just an exceptional day for myself, you know, it was just, uh, you know, from, uh, I had a great sleep, just, it was just like, uh, an A plus day. So, um, you know, if it is it, then, you know, that would be a great way to do it. Like Carey Price had every excuse not to play that game on Friday night. And I know where you're going here and I understand what you're saying because listening to that, and this is purely my opinion, Jeff. Carey Price was thinking there was a possibility, possibility. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's 1% or 50% or what percent you put on it. It might just be 1%. But to me, Carey Price was saying there's a possibility this is my final game. I mean, the clues are there. Yeah. The clues are there when he talks about, and I'll, you know, paraphrase here, you know, when he was asked about, um, you know, could he play next season based on the discomfort that he's in with his knee? You know, the idea that playing 50 or 60 games in this discomfort is, is out of the question. Uh, I, my honest opinion is no. You know, I don't believe that, you know, the current state would be, it would be sustainable for a whole season. So, you know, in that regard, I got uh, I got a lot of uh, again a lot of question marks, and and I, fortunately for me, I got a lot of time over the summer to prepare. So, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, that's a breadcrumb. 
right? That's a breadcrumb leading to a certain answer. But again, I want to want to be perfectly blunt about this one. I'm really uncomfortable speculating on people retiring. Yes. I'm really uncomfortable doing that. I think it's fair to say that you could listen to Carey Price talk after the game on Friday and believe that it was possible, that he knew there's a chance he might not be healthy enough to play next year. Yep. Now, who knows what that means, but there's a chance. Now, the thing I really think about the most when it comes to the Canadians and that, well, number one, I think about Price and his great career and what's the future. But the other thing I think about is all of a sudden, you know, the Montreal Canadiens have got to be thinking about having $18 million on LTIR. Yeah. That is extremely difficult to work with. Well, and and the reason is, just so all of our listeners are on the, the same page about this one, you go through a season and you accrue cap space that you use at trade deadline. When you're an LTIR, guess what you're not accruing? Cap space. That makes it tough to navigate, Elliot. Very difficult to navigate. And that's probably one of the reasons that they were trying to move Weber's contract. And they came very close. Um, they were working on something with the Coyotes. And the Coyotes ended up taking the deal Brian Little from Winnipeg instead. And they also got a good prospect out of it in Nathan Smith. But I can see why that was one of the reasons that Montreal was looking into that because you know, Weber's seven, five ish. And now you add the possibility of price to that. Mm-hmm. That's really, really difficult to handle. Even though we know the Canadians are rebuilding, you don't want that. And both those players still have term. Yeah. Let me just say first and foremost, Jeff, and I think you would agree. You hope that this finds a way for price. I'll be blunt. I hope that he has a great summer and he recovers and miraculously the knee returns to a level that Carey Price can play. And we see Carey Price playing more, whether it's in Montreal or somewhere else. Again, I'm crossing my fingers on that. Yep. And that would be a best case scenario, certainly for Carey Price, certainly for the Montreal Canadiens, or if there's another team involved, that squad. You hope for his health. You hope he can keep playing because it's a better NHL when Carey Price is in it. And I wonder if there's also a path where someone says, look, we're going to come forward with a plan. This is just me talking out of my butt. I wonder if someone comes forward with a plan that maybe they say, look, Kerry, we're going to come up with a plan that has you coming back next year at, say, the All-Star break. And we try it then. I don't know. Hmm. But I wonder if that becomes a question, too, that they come up with a rest and a recovery and, and a plan that says, we're going to have you play again but it might not be at the start of the season. It might not be in October. I could see it. Other sports have done things like that, Elliot. The NHL always has this, has always had this, you know, 82 game mentality and that you have to play the whole season. It's never really to any significant extent really explored the idea of in a significant and consistent way, the idea of Take a long break deliberately. It's tough now for two reasons. One, because the league is so cap tight. Mm-hmm. You really need cap flexibility to be able to do that. The other thing, too, is if you're a team that believes it has to make the playoffs or wants to win the Stanley Cup, I don't think you could do that. But for a team that's you know coming up the mountain like Montreal is in the sense that they're really beginning a rebuild, I think you do have the ability to do that. Um, any surprises from Martin St. Louis? No, I mean, we badgered him and he kind of said he was coming back. And 
I don't think so. I, I'm not surprised in the least bit. I'm just curious to see what he does for term. Mm-hmm. Like, does he do three years? Does he do five years? You know, what's the term that everybody decides on here? But it does look like everybody's happy. I can honestly, I cannot recall a team being this happy with their coach after they finished in last place. Well, a he's only responsible for a couple months of that. No, but you know what I'm you know what I'm saying. Like, I, B, I know, they're like... very happy to have the first pick in Montreal, <laughs> and C, as you talked about with him in the interview, players like Cole Caulfield are leaving this year feeling much better about themselves, and yeah. and that's what they needed. Absolutely, Zdeno Chara. We talked about it last week on the radio show on the podcast as well. You wonder what was going to happen at the. Uh, at the end of that game on Friday night, um, would the players line up for handshakes? And the Tampa Bay Lightning did. It's been nothing official. Someone was saying to me on Saturday, it feels like a really heavy year. Getzlaff, Dustin Brown. Chara wasn't saying one way or the other, but what was left unsaid is that people think he's headed in that direction. You could tell by a lot of the comments. You know, also to the broadcasters, yeah, Pat Foley, Dennis Bayak. We're going to talk about Rick Janaret. Also, Keith Yandel. Yeah, handshakes for the Flyer defenseman. I, I understand he's got some media offers already. Not surprised. Not surprised. I want to wait to talk about Chara when it actually happens, but I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about Zeno Chara. Like he is absolutely one of my favorites and um you know daniel alfredson was probably my favorite charo would be right up there too i specifically tuned into the end of the islander game last night because i i wanted to see what was going to happen i really wanted to see and and i know it got lost in all of this because this guy's a great pro too Mm -hmm. but you know who else played the last shift with chara was Andy Green. Mm. When you're next to Chara, it's sort of like being Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan. Everybody kind of forgets you're there. <laughs> yeah. I saw Scotty Pippen was wanting tonight that he never won Defensive Player of the Year because everybody was watching Michael. Yeah. You know, Andy Green. He had a really good career, man. If that's it, and he's good pro too. 39 years old. Like he was always one of those we need the veteran in the room guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a, I got a lot of time for Andy Green. And the Islanders fans were great. Like they they were great. The Chara chance. I'm sure there's a lot of Islanders fans who look at Chara and said, you know, we really missed a lot of the big points of this guy's career. If only. If only. But but they they sent him off really well. Like really great job. They really did. Again, to your point, we'll we'll park more time. Uh, somewhere down the road when it becomes, if it becomes official, that uh, Zidane Ochara is calling it a career. You mentioned Rick Jenneret. This has been a heavy year for broadcasters. You're right. I was just glad to hear Rick Jenneret say overtime for a final time. He got it across ice. Doesn't shot right on the Casey. Casey at the back. Casey Middlestad hammers it home. Buffalo wins it in overtime. In that game against the Chicago Blackhawks, Casey Middlestad scores in the extra frame against the Blackhawks, and Rick Jenneret gets to say overtime again. Rick Jenneret is more than just one word, but whenever I hear the name Rick Jenneret, 
I mean, I'll certainly hear Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Mayday that's the one. Yeah. But I will also hear Overtime mm-hmm. from Rick Jenneret in my head. You have a thought or two on the legend behind the mic in Buffalo? And we've talked about a lot of these guys this year, right? Bob Cole, uh, who was honored. Yep. Pat Foley, we talked about a couple weeks ago. Dennis Bayak, we talked about the last podcast, and now Janaret. I mean, it's it feels like a lot of our a lot of our lives are, for lack of a better term, are flashing kind of in front of us in terms of the way games have been described to us. And um, you know, who was the guy that packed Buffalo this year? It was Janaret for a game. Yeah, he did. You know, if if there was going to be one game that was going to sell out this year in Buffalo, it was going to be the one where they were talking about Rick Janaret. And what you hope to do as a, as a broadcaster is connect with your community. Like, there's not a specific community, Jeff, that identifies with us. We are, you know, people who look at the league, try to at least from a national perspective. But certainly Rick Janaret's a guy that connects. And, you know, he was Buffalo, blue collar, mm-hmm. emotional, uh, appealed to the people. He's the soundtrack of their lives. He was for Buffalo Sabres fans. And the other thing too is, and there's a lot of different ways to call a hockey game and not Mm -hmm. one is better than the other. Some people like it delivered very matter of fact, some like a real staccato pace, some like a, you know, a uh, lawn sprinkler type delivery. Others like a more, you know, entertaining, uh, which was, which was clearly Rick Jenner uh, an entertaining style call. You know, we always talked about Bob Cole and how he was the master at working a lot of different levels. Mm-hmm. Like you always knew how serious a moment was by the tone of Bob Cole's call. But Jenneret was right there too. Like Jenneret knew how and could instinctively detail a game in a tone that was reflective of what was happening. I mean, there were times we had listened to Rick Jenneret, Elliot, I'm sure you had the same experience. And it's like... It's barely above a whisper because that's what the moment called for. Mm-hmm. And then there was the mayday call, the over the top, because that's what the moment mm-hmm. called for. But you know what happens? Like hockey games are interesting. And I'm always curious to hear how a broadcaster handles when a game settles in. Like I know for a lot of younger broadcasters that they, when they first start doing play by play, and I was guilty of, uh, of this as well in the few times that I did play by play, I never knew how to call a game once the game settled. Like a game starts and it's like, okay, every line's got to get out there. Everybody's got to touch the pockets. Go, 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 go. Let's get everybody involved. And that lasts about 10 minutes and then the game settles in. And I always try to pay attention as to how the broadcasters handle a game when it settles. How can you reflect that a game is settling in and how can you make the viewer comfortable? Because if you work at one pace for the entire game, it's overwhelming for everybody and none of it has any significance. Generet was great when the game settled. I think it's one of the great skills that never gets talked about. How do you reflect the game when it settles in? Generet was great at that, Elliot. Yeah, he was great at it. And I, I think the thing is when we're talking with all these people, we're talking about people who connected with their community. Yeah, they, he sure did. The key to being a great team broadcaster is do you connect with your community do you understand what matters to them do you appeal to what matters to them and you know janet clearly did rj great career magnificent elliot one more thing from buffalo uh before you move on 
your thoughts on the vocal stylings, oh man, of Malcolm Subban. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Who knew? (laughs) Really? That's great. Who knew? First of all, I like the whole thing about it was the players hear him singing. They say, you should do it. He goes to practice it about four hours before the game and then says, eh, I'll give it a shot. And he did it. And first of all, I thought the players on both teams were phenomenal. Yeah, it was great. Banging their sticks. It's awesome. I thought it was great. You know, I'm a lot more fearless now than I was when I was younger. I was, I I think, you know, you look at it like the suits I wear now, the beard, the hair, like some of the stuff I do. I never would have done that when I was younger because I I took myself way too seriously. Mm. That's the thing I like about Subban, a guy who's still really young, who's unafraid to get up in that public space and say, you know what? I'm going to try this. It really might not work, but it might. (laughs) And it did. And that's the thing about it that I, I saw watching it. Like, good on him yeah. for having the courage to do it at an age where I probably wouldn't have had the courage to do it. He was great. The last thing I want to mention before we go on to our playoff preview is, did you see Ivan Provorov's quotes today? Oh, boy, did I ever. He's not interested in any self-evaluation to anybody. That is our job. So I had, I had a few people send me those quotes and someone said, would it bother you if a player said that to you? And I said, no, not in the least. It, it, it wouldn't bother me. If that's how someone feels, that's how they feel. See, I think there's a lot bubbling behind the scenes in Philadelphia. And look, we've been talking about Philly all year and we mm-hmm. all are expecting change. And this is what I think. This is my guess. And judging from Provorov's response on Saturday, if I'm wrong about this guess, I'll probably hear about it in some indirect way. But I think that he feels that he put together the best effort he could in a very, very difficult season. And there's people out there who think he needs to be traded. And there's people out there who think that maybe he hasn't played as well. And I think he feels that he's trying everything he can to make it work, and it's just not working. Mm -hmm. And I think he feels, whether other people agree or not, he's trying his best to make it work. And I think that organization and that team has a lot of things that they have to fix, and I think they're going to try to keep Sanheim. And if they sign Sanheim long-term, I'm not sure there's going to be room for Provorov cap-wise, yeah. which means he could get dealt. But I think that he looks at it like, I have tried my damnedest to make this work, and a lot of people blame me, and I don't think it's solely on me. I don't know if he's absolving himself of any responsibility, but I think he feels that more blame goes his way than deserves to go his way And I think he feels he tries his hardest to make it work. That's what I think that's about. I understand all that. And the other part of me always says, when you're a top pairing defenseman, 
the expectation is high. Yep. And I know that I, I, I look at Provorov and I say, hold on, how much should I really be judging Provorov this season when the person who was brought in to compliment him, and we all know how important pairs are in the NHL, essentially didn't play the entire season, and that's Ryan Ellis. How much can I really pin on Provorov? It's an incredibly demanding position. The Flyers are in an incredibly difficult division, specifically for defensemen. I've been part of the chorus that has criticized them, so I'm not absolving myself here of anything. I've been part of it, but I always, in the back of my mind, am thinking, how hard should I be on this guy? Knowing that the partner they brought in to help him, the new Matt Niskanen, Ryan Ellis, didn't play. Fair enough. On that, we'll hit a pause. Uh, We'll come back. Playoff preview, 32 Thoughts, the podcast style in a moment. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Okay, I'm going to start off this playoff preview, Elliot, with a lie. Okay. Elliot and I are going to try to be really economical about this so we don't <laughs> waste your time. Now then, let's start by talking about the Florida Panthers That's good. against the Washington Capitals. Number one versus the second wild card team. Would it be fair to describe this as the President's Trophy versus Fading Glory? Or would that be too harsh? Washington, remember when they went into the bubble and they got out and they just said they weren't right. Yep. They weren't right. I'm thinking about that right now. First of all, there's there's two players here. Their health will have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. And one is Ovechkin, obviously, who missed the last few games of the season. So, you know, that's one of the first things that I immediately think about. You know, especially Ovech- in Ovechkin's case. When you play Florida, you're going to have to be able to outscore them. Without Ovi... They can't outscore them. Even with Ovi, I'm not convinced they can outscore them. There's just something off on the Capitals right now. Number one, like there's some teams that are going to go in and play two goalies. I think Boston's going to play two goalies, and Bruce Cassidy kind of hinted at that last week. I think there's a chance Edmonton has to play two goalies just because of age. Mm -hmm. But I think those teams understand that that's part of their DNA. I don't think the Bruins are going to be phased if they see either Swayman or Allmark there. And I think the Oilers understand they could see both Smith and Koskinen. Mm-hmm. But I think the Capitals are looking at Samsonov and Vanacek, and they're like, 
oh boy, like which one can we depend on here? And we may have to see both of them because one of them hasn't established themselves yet. The reason I like Florida in this series is I just don't like the way the Capitals are coming in. Like there is something off with this group right now. And I really think to beat Florida in a seven game series, you're going to have to be able to score. And I just don't think Washington is going to be able to score enough to beat Florida. Whitson, we've been talking about the age of the Washington Capitals now for a number of years. And when you talk about something like age, eventually you're going to be right. It's like the housing bubble. There's going to be a pop. Eventually, we're going to be right. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just, again, and I know I've said it before, I just wonder if we're there. I just wonder if we're there. And Jeff, if I'm not already concerned enough about Washington's chances in this series, what did Andrew Burnett say on Sunday? Aaron Ekblad is a full participant in practice, and there's a chance. There's a Samsonite. So you're saying (laughs) there's a chance he could play for game one. Chance the Panthers could reunite one of, if maybe not the best pair in the NHL, Aaron Ekblad and Mackenzie Wieger. You're saying there's a chance. Elliot Friedman, you're saying there's a chance. That is bad. B-A-D for the Capitals. Number two versus number three in the Atlantic. It's the Toronto Maple Leafs against the Tampa Bay Lightning. And for the second year in a row, the Toronto Maple Leafs face off against Corey Perry Mm -hmm. in the opening round. Your thoughts on this one? That's what you're taking out of this series? It's Toronto against Corey Perry again? No, you know what I'm taking out of this one? What's that? It's Victor Hedman versus uh, Austin Matthews. I think this is going to be a phenomenal series. I agree. I I really do. I'm looking forward to it. I, I think there's so much about this series to like. I think <laughs> I, I think Tampa was a bit vulnerable. Now they're tuning people again. After you woke them up when you started saying that they were <laughs> that they were tired. What? Somebody <laughs> reminded me after they, they said, you know, there's people on the Lightning who do listen to your podcast, right? I think teams get up to play Toronto, and I think this team in particular will. Sure. I do think Stamkos playing four out of seven, potentially in his hometown. The guy is on an absolute tear right now, mm-hmm. and I do think the players there understand how meaningful that is to him. Look, they've got the best player in the league in the playoffs, Vasilevsky. I do not bet against the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's that simple. I look at Toronto, and I see a team that is – a really good team, and they finished the regular season fourth overall, a 701 winning percentage, and look what you get. It's an awful, awful matchup to get. I think Toronto has done a really good job addressing their blue line. I think their blue line is better than when it started the year. They still are having trouble finding a mix on that fourth line. I really look at it, this whole year has been about How do you manage it when things go bad? Like the Toronto Maple Leafs' biggest playoff problem the last few years has been how do we prevent ourselves from going downhill when things go bad? And it will go bad at some point in this series. Tampa is too good. And I just look at their group and say, will they be able to pull themselves back together when momentum goes the other way, because in all those losses to Boston, they had a brief moment where they almost pulled it out against Columbus, but lost game five. And especially last year against Montreal, mm-hmm. when the boulders started rolling down the hill, 
they couldn't handle it. Are they different about that this year? Last year, the Maple Leafs froze. Mm-hmm. They got up three to one and they froze. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I've been saying leading into this year's playoffs about the Toronto Maple Leafs is if you look at the history of the league with skilled players who bumped up against futility in the playoffs, I mean, ask Detroit Red Wings fans what people used to say about Pavel Datsuk in the postseason. Like, it almost seems ridiculous. But the conversation once upon a time, Elliot, as you can very well remember, was he's a good regular season player. But the playoffs show up, look how Anaheim shuts him down. Look how Pavel Datsuk vanishes. But the history of this sport is elite skilled players figure it out. Mm-hmm. Elite skilled players find a way. That's why I know the hue and cry around Toronto. And listen, Marner heard it last year a ton. Austin Matthews heard it a ton. I just look historically at the NHL and say, guys like this find a way. They figure it out. They're too good. They're too smart to stay frozen. Like we've seen star players freeze before. Happens. Hockey's hard, man. NHL's hard. Playoffs are tough. It's really hard for everybody, even the superstar guys. But the history of the league is these guys figure it out. And I don't see any reason why guys like Matthews and Marner should be any different. But the thing is now there's a clock. And the clock is that if if it doesn't work for Toronto this year, Mm-hmm. there's going to be changes. On the Tampa side of things, you mentioned Andre Vasilevsky, who starts the playoffs as the MVP. That's where, you know, the uh, the Smythe Trophy starts there. And at the beginning of the playoffs, it's his to lose. He starts with it. Three-peats are hard, man. <laughs> Three-peats in the salary cap era. Um, and specifically given what, you know, everybody's gone through in the last couple of years, I know you mentioned the fatigue and all of a sudden Tampa goes on the, the rip, but I think there's something to that. I think there's also the fact that they didn't have that third line with Gordon and Coleman and Goodrow. That was John Cooper's safety blanket. Throw these guys out there. Yeah. You know, they went out and they got Hagel and they went out and they got Paul. And I don't know if those guys are as good as the guys they had but they've improved their forward depth. They've made them a little better. So I do think they've addressed that. They saw the weakness and they addressed it to some degree. As far as I'm concerned, Tampa's playing with house money. Nobody's expecting them to win a third straight time. They could, Mm -hmm. but the odds are really against them. So I look at it as anything they do this year is a bonus. Because you've already won two and nobody's expecting you to win three. I think you you said it right. I can't wait till the puck drops in this series. It's a huge challenge for Toronto. I think they're good enough to do it. For me, the biggest question is, like I remember Ron Hainsey doing an interview with Ron Hainsey and he played for the Leafs. He said the whole reason he was brought there was to teach them things are going to go wrong. How do you handle it? Hmm. Well, Hainsey's been gone now for two years. They couldn't handle it last year. How are they going to handle it this year? Quick question for you. Yeah. Victor Hedman plays on average 25 minutes a night. Mm-hmm. How much is he going to play per night in this Toronto series? 
5957. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like that game against the Kings uh that we always rave about. That to me is going to be one cuz Hedman's one of my favorite players. That's oh, this this, this is going to be one of my one of the stories within the story here. Okay. The Carolina Hurricanes and the Boston Bruins because these two always meet uh in the playoffs. Thank you very much. Number 1 in the Metropolitan Division facing off against the first wild card team. Lena Solomark, uh, Jeremy Swayman. You talked about the battery of goaltenders there with the Boston Bruins. I think mm-hmm. one of the sidebars in this one is, you know, will this be the last hurrah for Patrice Bergeron to make the season even heavier uh, by the end, whenever it does end for the for the Boston Bruins? I know there are the health questions about the Carolina Hurricanes netminders. How do you see this series for each? Well, that's what it seems like to me is which goalie grabs control of this series. I go back to the 2010 Stanley Cup final and remember it was it was a high scoring final and Michael Layton and Brian Boucher and and Cristobal Huet and Antti Niemi and it was all about which goalie grabs control of the series. And eventually Chicago just won it, right? Yep. That's what I'm curious about here is is you know, first of all, Freddie Anderson, you know, when does he feel comfortable enough to play? There's Ranta, there's Kachekov, and then there's the two Boston guys, Swayman and Allmark. And like I said, I think those Boston guys are comfortable in their two goalies. But to me, that's the question is, which goalie grabs a hold of this series and says, I'm the difference maker? Because I don't think anybody wants a total rotation here. I think mm-hmm. Boston knows they're going to have to do it once in a while. Generally, you want one person to establish themselves as quote unquote the guy. Who is the guy that does it in this series? These are really good teams. And Boston, I really trust their experience. When I look at Carolina, I see a team that is, I think is ready to win. I just look at what's going on in the net and I'm thinking, is one of these teams going to be undone by their goaltending? Here's what I think about it with these two teams. To me, the Carolina Hurricanes are the new school team in the NHL. Mm -hmm. This is the way they are a reflection of the way the game is evolving, the way the game is coached, the way the game is played. It's a team that has bonafide superstars, and it's also a team that has, how should I say, players, players, and analytics darlings, your Jacob Slavens of the world. For every Sebastian Ajo, there's a Jacob Slavin. For the Boston Bruins, I know that Patrice Bergeron is going to get a lot of the headlines. He should. David Pasternak is going to get a lot of headlines. He should. Ditto for Brad Marchand as well. You know the guy that I wonder about here? Who's that? Charlie McAvoy. He's a great player. I think that Charlie McAvoy has had an outstanding season that nobody is talking about Mm -hmm. at all. And whether Charlie McAvoy is paired with Matt Grizzlick or whether Charlie McAvoy is paired with Hampus Lindholm, it's always one of the top pairs in the NHL. He's a common denominator there. Whoever you put with Charlie McAvoy, it's magical. He is such a great player. And how many times have we looked at a series and said, this defenseman turned it? 
or this defenseman is the reason why this team won. And I'm with you on the goalie questions because, listen, what's the, the old saying? If you have the goalie, it's 70%. If you don't, it's 100. I get all that. I just wonder about Charlie McAvoy and if this is the beginning of McAvoy reminding people just how great he is. Because make no mistake about it, because I started to go through my ballot over the weekend, and the season that Charlie McAvoy had is spectacular. I agree with you. I, I voted him pretty high last year. I, I'm a big fan. That's what I wonder about here. Rangers and Penguins. Uh, the number two New York Rangers facing off against the number three Pittsburgh Penguins. Penguins opened up as the betting favorite here. Yes, they did. Even though the Rangers have owned them for a couple of seasons. I was I was really surprised at that. And also, too, because Jari, we don't know what his availability is going to be. Nope. See, the thing that always makes me wonder about that is I generally think the odds makers know, know what they're doing. So I kind of wondered about that. It surprised me. I don't think Pittsburgh can win this series without Jari. And I also don't like the way the Penguins are coming into the playoffs. I know they beat Columbus in the last night of the regular season. Like, like I'm not worried about Panarin's injury. I don't know so much more about Cop, but you know, Panarin to me that that screamed. Ah, these games don't matter. You know, Cop. Uh, we'll see, but. See, I, I like the moves that the Rangers made. I, I think that they're they added some depth that made them a lot better. I mean, we all feel the way we feel about Shesterkin. I'm not crazy about the way the Penguins have played lately, and I also think that without Jari there, I just I don't think they can beat them four out of seven. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you something else that was interesting was. Was Crosby this week being asked about you know the team and saying I know it can't last forever? Yeah, I think you just try to enjoy it as much as you can and and try to take it all in because you know that uh, it's not something that's that's going to last forever. And whether it's this year or down the road a little bit more, I mean, uh, you only get to play for so long. So I think um, <clears throat> just just trying to enjoy it and uh, and just be grateful for the opportunity that we have to do it to do it again. That seems to me that they know that this might be it for that trio. For that group. Yeah. We've talked about it plenty. Well, he, here's the thing. And you get, I can hear your eyeballs already rolling back in your skull when I when I talk about Shesterkin because I bugged you about him all season long. Well, he's great. He's great. So he, one of the big stories around the NHL all season long, and we ended up with eight 100-point scorers, was this is the return of the offense. This is the return of goal scoring. This is the return of seven, five games. What a crazy season. This has been nuts. You know, the rink is tilted in favor of the shooters now. 935 save percentage. Yep. Igor Shosturkin. And although it sort of changed halfway through the season, that first, this first half of the Rangers season was all Rangers are taking chances because Shosturkin's going to bail them out. They are going to bleed chances and they're fine with that because Shosturkin is that good. He can bail them out. Now, that didn't remain for the entire season, but we've talked about goaltender stealing series before, and I just don't know that I like this for Pittsburgh given how they've played, um, how we don't know, to your point, how we don't know about Tristan Jari when he makes an appearance, if he does make an appearance in this series at all. I don't like any of it when these guys are going up against Igor Shosturkin, who looks at all these goal scorers and all these 
players that are putting up 100-point seasons and laughing and dominating at his position. 935 save percentage. We've seen goalies steal series before. This one looks like that to me. It gets, it's, it's all set up here for Shosturkin to have a command performance. Which means the Penguins win 6 nothing on opening night. <laughs> ah, Elliot, yet another start to another week. Now, other than the 32 Thoughts podcast, there's eh, not much else really to look forward to. Jeff, you are forgetting about Montana's Daily Deals. Their chicken wings are double-dusted in-house, cooked to a golden crispy finish, and... They're half price on Mondays. Uh, half price? Half price every Monday and sauced however you like them. Well then, head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar for half price wings every Monday. The only other thing exciting about Mondays. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is... People will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. To the Western Conference, Elliot. Uh, let's start with Colorado and Nashville. It is uh, team number one against the second wild card. And what we need to talk about right out of the gate, the UC Soros factor here. <laughs> Somebody said to me on Saturday morning, like, I fell asleep on Friday night. I was tired because it was all Jeff's fault. We had to. I had to be up at 6.15 in the oh, morning. Oh, kitten. Yeah. Oh, Because we had to do something. And Jeff's schedule is so tight, he's got no free time because he's getting his nails done or something. They do look nice. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure they look great. My part-time career is a hand model. You know, that worked for George Costanza. <laughs> Until the iron. So I fell asleep early. And when I fell asleep, it was 4-1. And... Uh, I'm like, okay, it's Calgary, Nashville, and it's Dallas, Colorado. But and then I woke up and I was like, what happened? Yeah, way to go, Yotes. And somebody says to me, do you think that Nashville threw that game because they didn't want to play Calgary? And I said, excuse me, look who they're playing right now. It's not like it's any easier. Yeah, out of the frying pan. You know, first of all, Arizona, for the year they ha- had, what a final week of their season. Well done. But really good. I really wish Saros was healthy enough to play. I just think that whoever Nashville got was going to be a really tough out. You know, it's going to be Riddick based on the way it went for those last, those two goalies, the last two games, it's going to be Riddick. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard to see Riddick beating Colorado four times. I think Nashville is going to give Colorado physically 
everything that they can handle. And I think they're going to make this series really difficult on them. I can imagine what Matt Duchesne is going to be thinking going into this. I think Nashville, the way the game is going to change, they're going to be a really tough team to play against. Like, I even think Nashville can score to keep pace with Colorado. I really do think that. I mean, you think they can go goal for goal? I think there's going to be games, maybe there's one or two games where Colorado gets five or six, and that's a tough order. But if it's three or four, I think Nashville can get there. I really do. I just don't think they can win four out of seven without Saros. Yeah. And I think that this year, that's the real shame of it is that, you know, you look at Jari and you look at some of these injuries and it's terrible. It happens right before the playoffs, but I don't know, Jeff, I just don't see it without him. I don't. I'm having a hard time too. Uh, I do think that, and we've talked a lot about the third line and the heaviness of that line and what third lines do. Um, I think that's going to be a crucial one for the Nashville Predators, but I'm with you without UC Saros because UC Saros holds it all together. UC Saros was the guy that when, you know, David Poyle was ready to blow up this entire team said, okay, everybody climb on my back. We're going to the playoffs. To me, he's the guy that holds all of it together. And without that knocking off the avalanches, that's a tall order. That is a real tall order. Minnesota, St. Louis. Oh boy. It's a two, three. It's the one that we've all been looking forward to. Like St. Louis has this great balanced attack. Mm-hmm. You know, nine, 20 goal scorers, nine, 20 goal scorers. And on the other side, you have Selkie trophy candidates. You've got a uh, Kirill Kaprizov who comes in popping 108 points, top five in the NHL. You've got a couple of good goaltenders in Minnesota. You've got goaltenders with the St. Louis Blues. And I wonder about Vili Husso in the postseason. I'm really looking forward to this one for each. And these two teams don't like each other. These two teams do unspeakable things to one another when they get together. This one, this one looks good for each. To me, this is the toughest series to call. I think that Flurry, the Flurry trade, this is where he pays off his dividends. If you're Minnesota, I mean, what are you going to say here? The Blues have the most balanced attack in the league. They had what nine twenty goal scorers. Nine twenty goal scorers, yeah. How do you pick between these teams? Nine twenty goal scorers, and Justin Falk got sixteen too. Yep, <laughs> had a phenomenal year. Like, really did. Just a great year, and and you've got Minnesota all the different ways that they can play. It's a crazy, crazy series to pick. See, Minnesota's got the biggest star in the series. Yes. Offensively. And that's Kaprizov. And, you know, the one thing about St. Louis is that they're a mature team in the sense that they know how to historically, like last year they got wiped out in the playoffs. Like that doesn't even count. They weren't even there, but that's not this team this year. I think that they are good enough to be able to say, we're going to focus on Kaprizov. I don't think you stop him, but I think you at least make life more difficult for him. Hmm. You know, Zuccarello and Hartman as line mates, you know, they're going to have to be great, continue to be great. I think someone else in Minnesota is going to have to be a consistent scoring threat too. I always look at which team can score more. And I think St. Louis is the team that can score more. I think both of these teams are smart. I think they're high IQ hockey teams. I think they're very good at identifying 
What's your weakness? And how are we going to deal with that? You know, Fiala had an unbelievable year. He's he's just got to continue that. This is such a series where I could see so many people deciding it. There are so many players in this series that I could look at and say, they're going to be the difference maker in the series for their team. I can't wait to watch it. Can I suggest one that maybe people haven't talked enough about? Sure. Pavel Bushnevich mm. has had a really, really good season. I mean, listen, Vlad Tarasenko has had a really good season as well. You know, those two are the only 30 goal scorers on the St. Louis Blues. I wonder about those two. I think those are great picks. And the other thing here is St. Louis has generally been a team that can push you around. Nobody can push around Minnesota. Nope. Nobody. Nope. But St. Louis is a team that's not used to being pushed around. Minnesota can push them around. That's what I always say, like at the beginning of the uh, beginning, like the, the the first round of the playoffs, and when people will moan about, oh, there's going to be this, the all these great teams that leave after the first round. I don't care. I'd I'd rather see two really good teams go at it right away, knowing this is the best chance for them to be the healthiest. Because I'm with you. I want to see Nashville with Saros. I want to see Washington with. Ovechkin like you want to see all the healthy great players in there and chances are you're not going to get that in the conference final because there's going to be oh this guy's got the thumb this guy's got the shoulder this guy's got the ankle and it's not going to be the best possible hockey give it to me in the first round regardless if it means oh a great team's going to exit so what get a great series out of it you get as close to a real answer as possible I don't know that you get real answers as the playoffs go along. You get a answer, but you don't get the real ones because players are dropping out, players are getting hurt. That's why I love the first round. But to your point, that's why I want all the players as healthy as possible because that's when you get as close to a real answer. Uh, And the question is, who's better? Real simple question, real simple sports question. You get closer to a real answer in the first round than you do in rounds two, three in the Stanley Cup final. Mm-hmm. Calgary, Dallas. Oh boy. Calgary with 340 goal scorers, the top line in the NHL. Hannafin with a great season. Rasmus Anderson with a great season. Jacob Markstrom with a great season. Mangiapani with a great season. Milan Lucic finding that identity again that fits with the Calgary Flames and this team go right down the list against a Dallas Stars team. They have a great first line, make no mistake about it. And then after that, a ton of question marks for each. How do you look at this one? Daryl Sutter is going to come up with a plan for Robertson, Pavelski, and Hints. Mm-hmm. They may score, but I don't think you can beat a team as deep as Calgary is with one line, the way that Dallas has gone lately. I just don't think you can do it. I think if Dallas is going to win this series, somebody, and maybe it's playoff Jamie Benn, and maybe it's somebody else, somebody is going to have to be an offensive hero for them. I don't think one line can beat the Flames. I think they're too good, they're too deep, they're too smart, they're too connected in what they do, that one line having a big series is going to beat them. I don't like this matchup for Dallas at all. You know, the other thing too is, Marty St. Louis talked about it in our podcast with him a couple weeks ago, and that is that you get a reset every once in a while. All the Canadians players 
when he showed up there as head coach, they got a reset, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this is everybody's reset in the playoffs. It doesn't matter how your regular season has been. You have a chance to write a new narrative for yourself if you show up to play today. And I think that what this is, is it's Dallas's reset. And I don't like the way they ended the season. Like there was a lot about the last week that didn't look great for them, but that's over now. I mean, now you're in. Now you can change. And they've got to be looking at that one line and saying, somebody's got to help them because you're not beating Calgary with one line. So my biggest question for the Stars is, who steps up? And who steps up and scores? Because I just don't think those three are going to be able to do it enough against as aware a team as the Flames are. You know, Elliot, one of the things that I don't think we've talked about enough is we get to see Matthew Kachuk in the playoffs. We get to see Matthew Kachuk in the playoffs. This is where every single game is like a symphony for him. This is where a guy like Matthew Kachuk shines. A symphony of insanity? Yes. A symphony of skill meets annoyance. You saw him against Nashville. Oh, yeah. That wasn't a playoff message. That wasn't a, hey, this is how I'm going to behave in the playoffs. If we meet, get used to it. Elliot, we get to see Matthew Kachuk in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. This is a great thing, Elliot Friedman. And I bet you Sutter serves them Kachuk's line sometimes. Yep. And Backlund's line sometimes. And others. More Matthew Kachuk in the postseason. Thank you very much. Edmonton and Los Angeles. We're finishing up on this one. Number two versus number three in the Pacific. Uh, we talked a lot about what the uh, the coaching change has meant um, for the Edmonton Oilers. Mike Smith versus Jonathan Quick. No Drew Doughty. Uh, and we wonder about Darnell Nurse. Those are a couple of the key injuries we keep in mind as we look forward to this series as well. What's intriguing about this one to Elliot Friedman? You know what someone said to me the other day? What's that? And I said, what's that? And he goes, you know what the LA Kings are going to try to do? to the Edmonton Oilers. And I said, what is that? And he said, they are going to try to bore them to death. Oh. He said, LA knows they cannot play speed for speed with this team. So this will be Kopitar and Dano just living in McDavid's pocket? This will be Red Rover, Red Rover, hello Oilers, <laughs> you come over. He says, the Kings are going to sit back. They're going to wait for them to come. And they're going to try to force turnovers. And if they get those turnovers, they're going to try to ram the puck right down Edmonton's throat. He said there's no other way for the Kings to win this series. They're going to have to let Edmonton try to come at them, but then clog it up so much to force the Oilers into mistakes. And I think the same thing that I talked about with Toronto is the same thing that's going to affect Edmonton is how do the Oilers handle it when things go badly? Now this year, things almost went off the rails and they pulled it back together. I think that's a good omen for them. But now it's the playoffs, and I think that's one of the questions. You know, we've talked uh, a number of different times about the Mark Bergevin line, players that get you there and players that get you through. Yep. Philip Deneau, in a series like this, is this not what Philip Deneau was made for? Like when he first put on hockey skates, is this like not exactly the type of scenario that this guy was made a hockey player for? He's on my Selkie ballot this year. Mm -hmm. To be honest, like I haven't really checked his numbers. He was brought in for a role and he filled the role. We can't have Anza Kopitar chasing around 
the best offensive players on the other team for 82 games. We need to free him up a bit. And Deneau did that. So I think yes. But the thing is, like last year, that Toronto team, like this Edmonton team, they're both high-octane teams. I just think that the way LA's built, and they're still really young. Like they're either really old or really young. There's almost nobody in the middle. Mm-hmm. If they're not disciplined and structured, they can't beat the Oilers. And I think they know that. The other thing too, Jeff, I was thinking is, when was the last time we saw a goalie matchup this old? <laughs> well, it would have been uh, Terry Sawchuck. Well, again. I was wondering. <laughs> like I asked them to check this for the for the broadcast on on yep. Monday night, but you know Smith just turned forty. Yeah, and Jonathan Quick is thirty six. When was the last time you saw two starting goaltenders? And I assume Quick is starting game one mm-hmm. that were seventy six years old combined. So. In 2012, Brodeur was 40. I think the oldest goalie he played against was Lundqvist, who that year was 30. So I bet you it's something like Bauer, Sawchuck, and Plant from 1967. Johnny Bauer in 67 would have been 42 years old. Which means he was probably about 45. Because <laughs> it's always believed he lied about his age. To get into the war early, absolutely. Yeah, yes. How old would Gump have been then? Okay, so 67, the final game, Johnny Bowers, 42, Gump Worsley's 38. The three to one win. Yeah. Would that one do it? That one would do it. They're, they're combined 80. But I'm wondering if there's anything between then. I don't know how late you want to stay up. Yeah, not that late. (laughs) But I, you know, I'm sure some people out there might have an answer and we're checking it for the broadcast Monday night. But that's one thing I was looking at. Like those two guys are combined 76. And the first thing I thought about recently was Brodeur. Mm. And he was 40. And do you remember who his backup was that year? Oh, was it Scott Clemenson? No, it was not Scott Clemenson. That's a very good guess, but it was not Scott Clemenson. Who was it? It was Johan Hedberg. The Moose! Was a year younger. The Moose! Oh, okay. So Brodeur had just turned 40. Right, Johan Hedberg. That's right. And Johan Hedberg that year turned 39 during the playoffs. Johan Hedberg, the bunny LaRock of his era, the best backup goaltender money could buy. All right, now that we've really gone off the rails. (laughs) Hey, man, you brought up Johan Hedberg, one of my favorite topics. I did, but I just think this series to me is a clash of styles. Hmm. And this is also a series to me where all four goalies could play. So I think it is, are the Oilers patient? Do they come up with a plan to get through that web? And like Toronto, when things go sideways, because they always go sideways in the playoff series, Hmm. do they keep control? We shall see. Um, All these questions begin to get answered on Monday. So get your sleep, um, set your schedule accordingly, free up your schedule, uh, free yourself up from some responsibilities that otherwise you would normally attend to because the playoffs are on the horizon. Here comes, Elliot, the sprint. Do you have a final thought before we close it off with the playoffs about to happen? I'm excited. 
I'm saying, man, this is the best. If we weren't already co-opted by the Disney Corporation, I'd say it's the most wonderful time of the year. Here we go. Also, quick programming note as well. Starting with the playoffs, that's Monday. We'll be doing three podcasts a week. And as Elliot mentioned in his 32 Thoughts blog last week, much to Amel's chagrin, there will be plenty of car casts. Enjoy. Enjoy three podcasts a week. That's good. So... We're doing something a little bit different with the music throughout the playoffs. We've teamed up with the fine folks at Amazon Music to create our own playoff playlist called 32 Tracks. That must be Amel's idea. 32 Tracks. Uh, You can find the full playlist in our show notes. Kicking things off is a Massachusetts artist who was enrolled as a painting student at the School of Boston's Museum of Fine Arts before developing an interest in music. Six albums later, Luke Temple has carved out a space for himself in the indie music scene. From his 2013 record, Good Mood Fool, here's Luke Temple with Hard Work in Hand on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy the tracks. I got my head on a dip On the number four Probably give my seat to the lady But I probably needed more Millionaire You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences, People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. 